2: no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for
0: details
1: hi everybody this is the cricket badger podcast
0: each badger marks the track with its own scent
1: his black legs are short but very powerful for digging the name badger probably comes from the french word becher meaning digger Hi everybody, welcome along to another edition of the Cricket Badger podcast and today I'm joined by Dan Whiting. I'll introduce him again in a second when we start that section of the show but we talk about iconic moments since about 1980 basically on English soil in Test Matches. What are the biggest moments, what are the best memories that we both have of cricket on these shores and the purpose is an association with goalhanger.co.uk. They're going to provide eight prints cricket badger special edition prints of those moments so stay tuned to the show you'll hear what those moments are we pick seven as we go through subsequently I've added in Botham's Ashes 1981 and if you visit goalhanger.co.uk you will see how you can buy them decently priced really nice prints and fill your boots look good on anybody's wall but myself and Dan we will go through those iconic moments as I'm staring out the window as I'm talking to you now it's absolutely chucking it down with rain it's grey skies it's getting pretty autumnal if not wintry in England right now the cricket season feels like it's a lifetime ago what a summer that we've had I can't wait to start watching the matches in New Zealand when England get going again and bring on the spring please bring it on but you can rest assured that on the Cricket Badger podcast every week we'll bring you cricket remind you of sunnier times as we chat to various guests over the winter months Right at the end of the show today you'll hear from Mojo Wellington. He's a an opponent of the 100 and he's written a poem which he'll read out at the end of this show. Good poem and uh, a good cause I would suggest. I don't want to try and get the Cricket Badger podcast too much down that route because my views are well publicised elsewhere on the 100 being introduced by the ECB next year. But Mojo got in touch, he read his poem out and uh, it's worth listening to at the end of this Cricket Badger podcast. But without further ado, let's stretch our minds back as far back as 1980. Let's have a think about test matches played on these shores. What are your favourite moments of test match cricket in this country? Well, myself and Dan Whiting, we pick ours.
2: It's that Badger style.
3: He's on Twitter too at the Middle Stump. He's an alternative cricket writer, creator of the Dooser of blogs. He says on his Twitter bio, "The musings of Dan Whiting, author, writer, and radio commentator, ambassador also for Melanoma UK." Dan, welcome. Welcome, it's a pleasure to be on board And uh, we are doing something a little bit different this week on the Cricket Badger podcast Because of something I'm doing with the goalhanger.co.uk They produce some rather nice sporting prints We are at Cricket Badger going to have our own range of iconic moments in cricket chosen by the Badger Because myself and Dan we're going to bring up three iconic moments of our own as we go through this podcast And the goalhanger.co.uk will produce those and make them sellable to Cricket budget listeners. And Dan, we've been thinking about what our iconic moments are going to be. I'm going to let you, as I'm a gentleman, I'm going to let you go first.
2: <laughs> well, it's, uh, you know, I expect nothing less James. Well, let's firstly, I mean,. Uh for me, growing up, I was a huge, huge David Gower fan, I was, he was my hero, his poster was on my bedroom wall, you know, he became England captain nothing sort of resonates more with my childhood than Gower's glorious summer, back in the summer of 85, you know, it was uh, Madonna was in the charts, with into the groove, but it was Lord Gower who was in the groove that summer, let me tell you he was just wonderful, wasn't he, I mean the Australians were a little bit weak, but it was the first Ashes series since iconic Eighty-one summer. Uh, it was in those days where the Ashes weren't sort of over-commercialised, and you know, they only came here every sort of four years back then, didn't they? It was just a wonderful, wonderful summer. And uh, it started off with uh, a draw. I think it was at Trent Bridge, and then we lost at Lords, didn't we? We Bob Holland span us out. It was about six million years old, I think, the leg spinner. And uh, they were a little bit weak. They'd had sort of South African issues, didn't they? They'd had a rebel tour to South Africa, and they'd had you see, the Packer sort of guys. But Dennis Liddy had sort of come back and uh, he was a little bit old at the time but uh, he was back in their sights uh, it was Gower's knock I think at um, Trent Bridge which was the real glorious one I mean you think of Gower's you know cover drives and his you know language flicks off his legs etc and uh, he was absolutely wonderful he got a one six six at Trent Bridge and it was just beautiful to watch he never hit the ball that hard it was just pure timing and uh, you know if you look at bats now uh, you know they're they're sort of big chunky things, aren't they? But back then his grey nickels uh, scoop, you know, had more meat on a jockey's whip, I think. You know, so uh, uh, and he he just timed everything, he timed it all, and the ball sped away just as quickly to the boundary. He got that beautiful one six six at Trent Bridge, and then he went to Edgbaston and got uh, a double hundred, got a two one five. But I think the one six six was an even better knock. And, he was just. Yeah. Very, very graceful, wasn't he, as a, as a
3: batsman, and
2: he was somebody I used to like
3: to watch as well, because, yeah, that summer, as I remember it, it was quite a nice summer, wasn't it? It was decent weather. I had uh, Dan Norcross on the podcast the other day and we were talking about um, David Gower's batting because he was one of Dan's heroes when he was younger as well. And I remember being on a family holiday. I was in the back of a car, got my dad to put a test match special on and we stopped for a picnic, I think. And I was listening to David Gower and Mike Gatting putting up on one of their fantastic stands in that 1985 series. But he was captain as well, wasn't he? He was somebody who... Didn't really seem to wilt under the captaincy that summer. He kind of led from the front, really. I guess is the, is the phrase, isn't it? Yeah,
2: I mean he wilted a little bit later, didn't he, against the eighty nine Australians? Yeah. But uh, I've I've also discussed this with Dan Norcross, but in the in the confines of the seedy backstreet pub in London when I did the old Test match sofa back in the day. He likes seedy pubs, Dan Norcross, I think. Oh, he's a big fan of seedy pubs, as am I. So we get on well. We get on well. Yeah, I mean you know that Gower knock was at, you know the Gower summer was absolutely brilliant, and it culminated at the Oval, where you know I think we were two one up going into it, and uh, Graham Gooch got a one nine six, and Gower got a one five seven in that. It was just the the sort of polar opposites of batsmanship, both brilliant in their own rights, but Gooch you know bashing it with his cudgel, Gower wafting it with his wand, and it was just. Beautiful to watch, and uh, there's nothing like seeing an Australian side put to the sword, is there?
3: Yeah, that that team was—it was a good team, wasn't it? In the in the mid '80s, yeah. Gooch was a, a phenomenal opener. You had Gatting, he was little and squat but punchy. Some really good players and that. side, so obviously, even them in the sides as well. Yes, it, it maybe kind of glistens a little bit because of the age I was at the time, but very fond memories of that era.
2: Yeah, you had both of them in there and you also had people like Richard Ellison who uh, swung the ball around corners at the time and uh, used to sort of come in off a curved run with his ginger moustache bristling, you know. And uh, uh, another moustachioed man of that era was Les Taylor. Do you remember him? He was in the side. He was uh, a coal miner from Leicestershire. And uh, famously, he played in the same side as And Famously, um, they played at some wicket on an outground somewhere. I can't remember where it was. I think it was, uh, I've got a feeling it might be Oldville was somewhere like that, and the wicket was a little bit spicy, but the coward declared. Uh, when they were about sort of 20 or behind, just because he thought Les Taylor was going to get killed. I think it's Malcolm Marshall was there for Hampshire. Coward (laughs) declared early because he thought Les Taylor was going to get killed. The wicket was that naughty, and Les Taylor was that much of a... Well, he was a ferret, wasn't he? He wasn't even a rabbit. He used to go in after the rabbits as a batsman. Yeah, Coward declared early on it, but Les Taylor got into that side, and I think Les Taylor actually took the final wicket at the Oval for us to win the Ashes.
3: I remember Richard Ellison very well because I, I watched a lot of my early cricket down in Kent and Richard Ellison was very good for Kent. And when you follow a county, you're always quite pleased to see your heroes getting selected for England. And I was actually down at the Canterbury Festival that August and it kept coming over the tannoy. Ellison's got another wicket. Ellison's now got a five Yeah, you know, And he just kept seemed to... Take wickets left, right and centre. I think the fourth and t- fifth test match, Richard Ellison's test match, is has yeah, a terrific series. and a, a, I think a really good nomination, that one, to start us off.
2: Yeah, I mean, Ellison, uh, I think he went through the Aussies in one evening session. I think we've got loads. And I think Goward got his two, one, five, And then both of them came in. And whacked, can't remember who it was, was it Alderman perhaps, back over his head for six first ball, which was unheard of in Test cricket back in those days. You know, people rarely hit sixes. I mean, remember this is, you know, just after the year of sort of Tavare and people like that, you know? Both them's come in, whacked a six, we've declared, and then Ellison's just gone through their top order, and the main man for the Australians is Alan Border. and once he got him out, the rest just folded. And uh, yeah, Ellison was, was a, a huge, huge part of that series.
1: The Cricket Badger Podcast is brought to you in association with Cricket365.com, They're ethos. We love cricket and want to make the world love it as much as we do. Join them at Cricket365.com. Thank you very much to them for their support of the Cricket Badger Podcast.
3: David Gower starts us off then as we search for the iconic moments in modern Test cricket. All of these, I think, are in England as well, so uh, that's the criteria. Modern Test cricket, iconic moments on English soil. I'm going to take us right back to the very near history, um, because my first nomination is Ben Stokes at Headingley. The ginger ninja from Durham silenced all of the Australians at Headingley just by doing what he does best, out in the middle, showed a lot of composure, showed a lot of class, and showed a a huge amount of skill as well, I think, in taking England to what seemed like an impossible victory at one stage when Jack Leach joined him in the middle to start that famous now 10th wicket partnership. Still needed over 70 runs to win that Test match, but Ben Stokes basically said to Jack Leach, I'll take five and over, you take one if you can, and we'll see how close we can get. And there's so many different kind of like little snippets inside that innings that will stay with me for a long, long time. Obviously, it's fresh in the memory now, but obviously Nathan Lyon, the run out right at the end where he didn't collect the ball cleanly and could have had Jack Leach well short of his ground backing up. There was the LBW shouts and they'd used all their reviews and used their last review on a ridiculous one that pitched about 10 miles outside Leg Stump and was never going to be given out. There was that reverse slog sweep that Ben Stokes played into the West Stand. And it was probably around that time where you actually started thinking, they're going to do this. They're actually going to to do this. Because when they turned up that morning, seven wickets still in hand with 200 or so to get on that final day, it was pretty much in the balance. But then England lost wickets fairly steadily all the way through that fourth day at Headingley and then Ben Stokes, he just stayed there. And I think what I found really impressive about Ben Stokes during that knock was that it was almost like a play within three acts. The first act was on the third evening when he had no intention of getting out. He batted for just over 60 balls. He was two not out, I think, overnight. And he just shut up shop. He said, right, Australia, if you're going to get me out, it's going to be tomorrow because I'm booking in for tomorrow morning. And then when he arrived there back with Joe Root at the crease on that fourth morning... They started off quite circumspectly. He lost Joe reasonably early. Then Johnny Bairstow came in and provided a little bit of impetus into the innings. And Ben Stokes was jolted a little bit by that. He started to play a few more attacking shots, 1-6 into the, uh, the West Stand as well, fairly early on, on day four. And then it wasn't until Joffre Archer and Jack Reach were with him, right at the end of that knock, where he opened his shoulders, he opened his eyes wide, and he started to belt the ball towards Bradford you had Tim Payne the Australian captain setting the field to try and denying the boundaries wherever he put the field he hit it over their heads and Jack Leach did what Jack Leach does best he just well as the name suggests he just clung on and uh, sucked the blood from the Australian team that day and then that final ball which was short outside the off stump Ben Stokes steps back Cracks it through cover before raises his arms to the crowd. The crowd stand. There's that famous side-on little video that Sky have done where you see Stokes' arms go up. You see Nathan lying, collapse in a heap. And then the crowd realize a split second later what's just happened. And they stand to a man on the West End behind the triumph of Ben Stokes. Jack Leach comes into frame and hugs him. And it was just one of the most phenomenal pieces of cricket. And a couple of hours of cricket I think I've seen I watched it on television and it was just mesmerising. I couldn't take my eyes off it at all, and as
2: I say, will live long, long, long into the memory. It was fantastic, wasn't it? I think it was the best knock I've ever, ever seen in Test match cricket, and I've been, you know, I've been watching Test match cricket since the mid seventies, and uh, it was wonderful. And Stokes has been, he's been like the vicar, isn't he? He's been going to work on Sundays in this summer of two thousand and nineteen. He Did it in the World Cup final, and then he did it at Lords on the Sunday as well. And uh, he, he sort of, you know, he preached to 28,000 at Lord's at the parish of St. John's Wood and then took his Sunday sermon up to Headingley as well, didn't he? And, uh, yeah, delivered, delivered there from the pulpit and it was an absolutely brilliant knock.
3: I, I just can't imagine ever being remotely capable of playing in innings like that. I mean, I was a, a fairly bog-standard club cricketer, but, you know, even... As a kid, when you stand in front of the bedroom mirror and you've got your new bat in your hand that you just got for Christmas and you start to make the clicking noises as you you play it around your bedroom for fours and sixes, that was Ben Stokes in reality, in the flesh, doing it, In the context of that game as well, because not only was he playing for his country and not only was he trying to get England across the line to win a test match that they looked like they were going to lose, if he got out at any stage, that was the Ashes gone as well. The Ashes urn was on the line all the way through Ben Stokes' knock. The pressure, the context, the atmosphere that was in that ground that day just makes it a very, very special moment for me.
2: Yeah, I've, I've just got visions of you playing a forward defensive in front of your mirror, James. Actually, but uh, there you go. And, and it, would, it would come right um, off the middle,
3: and it would have a beautiful click to it. The little, <laughs> the little click you always make when you when you shadow batting, that little sound as it speeds the way off your bat. That forward defensive right off the middle of the bat, right back towards the mirror. Fantastic.
2: Yeah, well I actually saw a guy at the station a few years back on the way into work actually on a train shadow batting and uh, it's amazing how everyone shadow bats are forward defensive, don't they? They never shadow bat a leave or a massive hoik to
3: leg, do they? But there you go. Was it, was it Stephen Smith on the, on the train yeah, Well, stage? it may have been, it may have been, <laughs> yeah. Your feedback for the Cricket Budget podcast is much appreciated.
1: Cricketbadger at hotmail.com fancy sending us an email send us a tweet at cricket underscore badger and make sure you follow that twitter feed too we've got plenty of great guests planned over the coming weeks make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing do it now 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 i tell you
3: that takes it on then that's two in the bag we're going to go on to the third choice then so it's back across to you done
2: yeah, I want to talk about the West Indies team of the uh, mid-80s. And uh, uh, what a side, hey! Eh? What an absolute side they were. And they were they were brutal. I mean, what, what happened? I mean, I'm sure everyone's seen the uh, documentary Fire in Babylon, which is absolutely fantastic. And I recommend everyone to have a watch of it because it actually takes people through the sort of political history of the West Indies as well. What you had, you had Australia absolutely battering people. I mean, they absolutely mullered us, didn't they, on the 74, 75 Tour with you know Tomo and Lily and uh, those guys and uh, they sort of blasted us out of out of uh, out of the game really. And uh, what happened was the West Indies then thought, well, I'm going to have a little bit of that, and they came here in '76. And uh, you know they they were good. You know Vivi got a brilliant two nine one at the Oval, which was just absolute world class. And I think Michael Holding took was it fourteen or 15, 16 wickets in that game as well. But it wasn't until sort of they they got better and better throughout that era and. Uh, it was the 84 tour here, which was, um, you know, absolutely just... They were at their peak then. They had Malcolm Marshall, who, for my mind, is the best bowler I've ever, ever seen, you know, under Clive Lloyd. And the thing to remember about the West Indies as well is they're not uh, one nation. They're a load of islands with a lot of politics going on, a lot of sort of, you know, inter-island rivalry. And Clive Lloyd held that side together. And they they set out their stall in the first test. Edgbaston, half an hour of the game, Malcolm Marshall's bounced Andy Lloyd and uh, well he's finished his career isn't he he's hit him on the side of the head and uh, you know put him out of the series uh, interestingly if you look up Wikipedia you know we all remember Andy Lloyd being a, a 5 foot 8 blonde brummy. it said he's no relation of Clive which uh, <laughs> considering Clive <laughs> 6 foot 5 and from Georgetown I thought it was rather ironic
3: yeah it was a fantastic team they brought over then wasn't it and yeah Viv Rich is one of my all time heroes you trained aren't you as an Englishman because we we got beaten left, right and centre by the West Indies too, try and dislike them in the same way we try and dislike the Australians in the Ashes series, but you just can't help at times just to sit back and just think, this is just legendary cricket that we're watching unfold in front of our very eyes. That you know, As you say, Michael Marshall, I was lucky enough to be in Barbados about 18 months ago and I got a taxi back to the airport when my trip sadly finished. Um, I wasn't too keen to get back to the airport, but the taxi driver that took me, he, he rabbited on like nobody's business. And it's one of my biggest regrets, actually, not to stick a dictaphone underneath his nose and actually make it a cricket-badger podcast all of its own because he was telling me, as we went through all about Malcolm Marshall, everything about it, we passed the church where he was buried, and, you know, passed everything. And he'd, every time we went around the corner, that was something to do with Malcolm Marshall, and he was amazing. And he just was, wasn't he? The grace that he, he ran in. And that was one of the things for the West Indies fast bowlers that Michael Holding and Malcolm Marshall in particular, they almost crept in then they just unleashed hell they were incredible bowlers
2: yeah, I mean, I've, I've spoken to Mike Gatting and I sort of asked him who the best he faced and uh, he said Malcolm Marshall, um, although Malcolm Marshall did rearrange his nose that time a couple of years after the 84 series, but uh, going back to your point about the West Indies, they love their cricket, the people out there, and uh, side actually, you know, gave them, it, it was more than just cricket, wasn't it? It was it actually sort of gave those those Islanders, um, you know, a focus and, uh, you know, something, something to be proud of. You know, the people out there are, are very proud people and... And they're, they're good people. And, uh, you know, I mean, I've been out there and just sort of sat around the beach with a load of them and talked cricket. And once you get past the, you know, England the crab, England are going to give you licks and stuff like that, they're actually very knowledgeable about their cricket. So, uh, But for me, what really stands out about that series, I mean, I, I saw the One Day series that year. I bunked off school. Any of my teachers are listening. Uh, please don't, you know, hassle me for it. It was sort of 35 years ago now. But I bunked off school and Viv was picking up Bob Willis for sixes into the mound stand at lords just for fun and this is like england's premier bowler and you know you're thinking wow and he had a knock in that one day series as well where he got about 160 170 or no 180 i think it was wasn't it Him, and michael holding put on loads for the last wicket i think it was old trafford and uh, viv just found the strike and just absolutely monstered it everywhere for me i mean they had batting everywhere it wasn't just all about viv uh you look at lords in that test David Gower gave them, uh, you know, a, a reasonable declaration and Gordon Greenwich came out on one leg, he had a hamstring problem and just smashed it everywhere. Absolutely, just smashed it everywhere, and uh, it was a series known as Blackwash, wasn't it? You know, they beat us five nil, and Alan Lamb stood up for England. He, he got sort of, he got a few hundreds in that series. Graham Fowler got a very good hundred at Lords as well against that side, and uh, he, uh, I did, did some commentary with him a few years ago, and he said Joel Garner broke his box about ten minutes before lunch, and he said he was picking Ouch. bits of box out of his. Uh, out of his jockstrap for the you know, whole lunch period, it smashed it into about 15 different parts. Yeah, I mean, you know, they, they battered us, didn't they? And, uh, you know, Winston Davis uh, broke Paul Terry's arm, I think that was at Headingley later in the series. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they, were, they were brilliant but brutal as well. And another guy in that series as well, I mean, you know, you think of Greenwich and Haynes and Richards and Clive Lloyd and all those bats, but a guy who really just wouldn't give his wicket away, who's like a barnacle, you couldn't prize him from the crease, was Larry Gomes. And uh, yeah. he he got a few runs as well, and he was wasn't great to watch, but he uh, he hung around. He was like a sort of like Chandrapur a little bit, you know, sort of not not that great to watch, but uh, you know, he, it's about runs in the book, isn't it? Hi, my name
1: is Brian Lara, and you're listening to the Cricket Batcher Podcast.
3: We've got three rather good ones, I think, so far. We've got three yeah. rather good iconic moments. I'm going to take us to something quite recent. Sir, as he is now, Alistair Cook. I could have gone back to so many different things, but I've chosen two very recent things, but. I always like it when a sportsman departs on his own terms. You know, you see so many sportsmen who get injured or they're dropped and they don't get the finale they deserve, their career deserves. And Shep, as he's known, 161 test matches, 12,472 runs, the most of any Englishman in test cricket, high score of 294, averaged mid-40s wasn't the prettiest of batsmen. At times during his career, he came under quite a lot of stick as well because in, in many ways, he was quite limited. But he knew his limitations and he knew how to score runs. And that is a quality, I think, we're only just starting, or a lot of people in England are only just starting to realise it's a rather good quality for an opening batsman to be able to hang around for a while and to accumulate runs is a big, big asset because we're seeing in recent times openers going left, right and centre, coming in, being tried and disappearing again because they just can't manage to step up to test match cricket. But Anastasia Cook did it straight away when he came into that England side and made that place his own all the way through. Obviously he had a good stint as captain as well. But the reason I'm picking him, the day that I'm picking him for, is his final century in Test cricket. Because, as I say, to go out in Test match cricket on your own terms, decide when to go, and then finish in style. Well, Alistair Cook did that. You know, that last Test match against India at the Oval, in September 2018, when he went in, wasn't in the best of form, hadn't had the best of series, and he came off with his arms aloft, runs a century to his name. That was just special. 147 and finally caught behind off the bowling of Vihari for 147. He'd made 70-odd in the first innings as well. But the crowd stalled. He walked off, and it was almost like not a dry eye in the house because everybody knew that you were seeing the departure of somebody that had given not just a lot of skill and not just a lot of tenacity at the top of the order, but he'd basically given his all to English cricket. As I say, it had not always been appreciated because he'd had a, a couple of bad runs in the team, but... The stats don't lie, do they? Over a course of a career like Alistair Cook's, the stats do not lie. The volume of runs, the amount of centuries, the quality that he gave England at the top of the order was second to none. And that day at the Oval, I think, is one of the iconic moments of of recent times that this man that was right up there in terms of English cricketers of all time to walk off like that and to say his goodbyes in the way he did, it was almost typical of him. That that century that he scored, as I say, he wasn't in the best of form coming into that test match. Many people were calling for his head anyway. But to go out like he did and to show the tenacity and to battle through to get to three figures and then to go on and make it a, a big 100, 147, was something quite special to me. I think that was real testament to the... The quality of the man inside the cricketer, really, the the heart that he had that he didn't want to give up and he wanted to go out in style and to go out with 147 to his name at the Oval at the end of a series was tremendous.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, cricket is one of those games that uh, tugs at the heartstrings at times, doesn't it? And uh, you're right, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. You know, Cook, he started off with 100 for England, he finished off with 100 for England as well, and uh, it was just a wonderful, wonderful way to finish off a career. For me, what, what's, what I really remember about that knock is the, uh, the overthrow that got him to his 100. It was the second time at the Oval, because I saw him a few years ago against Pakistan, and again he was out of knock, and that was the first hour form, sorry, and uh, it, was, it was the first time that I'd really sort of, you know, seen him out of form, first time in his career that he was really sort of struggling for runs and he, he ground out a century, gutsed it out, I think it was against Pakistan, um, probably about 2010, maybe 2000. No, 2011, 2012 perhaps, again he got to his 100 with an overthrow, he's punched one back at the bowler, the bowler's thrown it back at his head, Cook's weaved out the way, it's gone over the keeper's head for four runs, yeah, he seemed to like getting to his 100 with overthrows at the O see
3: some of his England teammates interviewed afterwards, they were were visibly emotional to, to have lost a teammate knowing that he was going to retire. And it shows, you know, not only had he given runs, but he, he was good in the dressing room, he was admired by all of his colleagues as well. And to see sort of Jimmy, the likes of Jimmy Anderson, who, you know, no mean cricketer in his own right, but, you know, almost crying when he was giving a kind of a tribute to him after the game. That was quite special as well. And I think the fact that he was batting with Joe Root when he got to his, his three figures, it was almost like he played a lot with Joe Root, but it was almost like he was passing the baton on there to the the, the other quality batsman in the England side. You know, I'm going, it's now your turn to, you know, you're, you're captain already, it's now your turn to take it on. That that was quite poignant as well, I think. But uh, Alice Cook, absolute legend, and will go down in history. I think when people look back in 50 or 100 years his, his name will be mentioned with a lot of respect you know, as we do a lot of the players from yesteryear and I think he's, he's deserved that because he put a lot into that England side and to go out like that as I say I think that Deserves to be mentioned when we talk about iconic moments in, in cricket,
2: without doubt. Without doubt, and uh, you're right. And he, he's been knight, you know, he's got his knighthood, and uh, he will go down. He'll go down and sort of well. At the moment, he's the leading run scorer. He's broken so many records hasn't he, for England, and uh, you know, he's uh, he's one of those. Uh, he's a fantastic player. He's, he's, as you said, he's not great to watch, but uh, he hung around. You know, we'd love him now in this series. I tell you. Well, I was
3: going to say, Tom. You know. It, it, You hear people talk about Alistair Cook and and they're right, you know, he had three or four shots and, you know, that square cut that he played, you know, the clip off his legs, he occasionally unfilled a, a pull shot or a hook shot and then, you know, he punched down the ground straight and that was Alistair Cook and he knew when to use the shots, he knew when to, you know rein himself in and just be dogged and determined and to leave alone he knew exactly where his off stump was and we're crying out for somebody like him now aren't we you know we lost Strauss we couldn't replace him and alongside Alistair Cook and now we've lost Alistair Cook as well and you you, you only really truly understand how good something is when it's gone and Alistair Cook is right up there in terms of uh, you know greatness in my opinion in, in that England side and Rory Burns is trying his best and we're now trying Joe Denley and and Jason Roy's had his his time and he's gone back down to the middle order and and possibly might uh, disappear from that England side but if if somebody could fashion a career as a a solid dependable run scoring opener there is a slot there for them and Alistair Cook had filled that for so long
2: yep without a shadow of a
0: doubt discover one of the most beautiful lifestyle resorts in the Caribbean at the Accra Beach Hotel and Spa. Located on the south coast of Barbados this beachfront property offers 224 rooms, sparkling pools, four restaurants, three bars, an on-site spa, event and conferencing facilities and a welcoming team providing unparalleled relaxation to make your stay a memorable one. What are you waiting for? Book your reservation at this award-winning hotel today and experience the Caribbean dream.
3: Let's move on to number five then. Before before I do, I've cheated a little bit because my number six that will come is actually two things. The one I told you, I, I was torn, and I'm, I'm going to mention both. So if you want to uh, do your number five, If there's anything else That comes to mind You can always spring it Off the back of this as well So you don't think You've been cheated In terms of choices But uh, give us your Number five third
2: Yeah My number five Um, It's the best series Of all time Uh, I think in, In sort of not just my mind, but a lot of uh, a lot of cricketing cog- cognoscenti have uh, all said that it's a wonderful, wonderful series. And that's the 2005 Ashes. I mean, what a series. Australia arrived. They were at the peak of their powers. I mean, we just spoke about the West Indies in sort of 84 and, you know, at the time they were probably the best side that ever walked on the cricket pitch. But they were usurped by the Australian side in uh, the sort of late, you know, early 2000s. And um, uh, they we came over here under Ricky Ponting and uh, they went home without the ashes, didn't they? And it was just a wonderful, wonderful series. I mean, it started off at Lord's with uh, Steve Harmison hitting. Justin Langer, I think, second, third ball, um, putting a massive lump on his elbow. He then hit Ricky Ponting on the head, cut him. Not one English bloke went to say, are you all right, mate, or anything like that. It was war out there. And uh, although we lost that that game, uh, you know, we'd set our stall out. And Michael Vaughan uh, skippered England very well. He wouldn't take any prisons. And um, uh, we moved on to Edgbaston. And, uh, you know, Edgbaston was... uh, It's it's England's rock, isn't it? It's England's hotbed of poor and it's it's our favourite ground really and uh, it started very well with us with Glenn McGrath tre- treading on a ball at half past nine in the morning doing a warm up and then, then it went even better when Ricky Ponting won the toss and said you guys can have a bat and we put on 400 on the first day and uh, everyone just, everyone went out there and uh, and gave it some Humpty really and uh, it was it was, uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful test and then it was all set up with them needing what about 90 odd to win, Shane horn trodden stumps, uh, suddenly they just Got down and down and down, didn't they? And it was Brett Lee and Kasparovich And then uh, Simon Jones dropped a catch with about 10 to win. And everyone thought, oh, no, that's it. It's, it's game over. And uh, that famous, famous ball from Steve Harmison to Kasparovic, where he bounced him, he's gloved it down the leg side. And Geraint Jones, tumbling forward, took a fine catch. And Billy Bounden's uh, crooked finger went up and, uh, you know, one all in the series.
3: I went to quite a lot of that Ashy series. And I was at Trent Bridge And I remember Ashley Giles and Matthew Hargard batting. I I think England was set about 137 or something around that to to win that test match. And I I can remember very clearly, I was there with a friend of mine, and the the couple of the father and son sat in front of me. They said, Oh, we might as well go home now. This is going to be comfortable for England. And I just looked at my friend and I just said, They have no idea, have they? Because (laughs) when you've got the likes of Shane Warne, certainly in the fourth innings of a test match, bowling at you, and the rest of the Australian. Bowling lineup. That was never going to be comfortable. I remember, Truskovic came out and hit a few fours to start with and got us off to a good start, but wickets just kept falling. And I couldn't sit still. I, you know, the runs required kept coming down, but the wickets kept falling. And it was only when that the final winning runs were hit that you could relax. And that was what that series was like all the way through, wasn't it? There were so many moments. I mean, England could quite easily have lost that series comfortably. But there were just the occasional sort of 50-50 moment in that series where it just came down on England's side. That was, the, that was the same Test match as well, where Gary Pratt ran out Ricky Ponting, wasn't it? Where, which caused a bit of a, a ferrari and certainly upset the Australian captain. Unbeknown to him, Simon Jones hadn't gone off just to have a shower. He'd gone off because he'd actually really hurt himself. Ricky Ponting Ricky walking off and chuntering at Duncan Fletcher and then going to confront Duncan Fletcher but certain flashpoints certain moments all the way through that series that just make it special
2: yeah Punter didn't like it did he um, but yeah that was a fantastic test at uh, Trent Bridge. and Shane Warne I think he got 40 wickets in that series didn't he which is you know that's outrageous for an Ashes series yeah. for a five test series it's you know it's a different league um, but yeah it was, it was the unlikely pairing of Ashley Giles and Matthew Hoggard there at the end and uh, uh, Warne nearly won it for the Aussies on his own. Here's the one before that as well at Old Trafford where Simon Jones bowled beautifully. Michael Vaughan batted very well, got 100. And uh, the Aussies had to save it on the last day. And Ricky Ponting got an absolutely brilliant century. And then was out just before the end. And then we had one over, didn't we, to uh, to remove their last pair. And, um, you know, it was a full house at Old Trafford. I mean, I think there was about 15,000 locked out on the fifth day, which, again, unheard of. It was unprecedented, wasn't
3: it? I I remember... um yeah, Michael Vaughan uh, was uh, supposed to have said, yeah, "Look at the Australians celebrating a draw." You now the kind of momentum had changed, hasn't it? The Australians were clinging on rather than soundly thrashing. His-
2: yeah yeah definitely and uh i think that, in a way that i think that old trafford test changed the series you know because it was one all going into that and you know it, it's been one all before i mean we won i think 97 we won the first test at edgbaston and we've got off to good starts in ashes but i think it was sort of you know it was one all and all of a sudden then you know we're in the ascendancy and the momentum was with us and momentum's crucial in a in a test series and uh you know they clung on for a draw. And then we won at Nottingham, and then we went to the Oval for the last test.
3: And obviously, we got through all of this far without mentioning a certain Kevin Peterson, who'd
2: <laughs> come onto
3: the international scene the previous winter. But that was his first home series. The Oval test was where he really did come of age, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was a bizarre test because I mean, we started off very well. I think did Strauss get hundred as well in the first innings? Tied off very well, um, and then they they had a good partnership between Hayden, Lang, and, and bizarrely They went off for light, didn't they? And uh, thinking, you know, it was back in the days when it wasn't down to the umpires. The umpires actually offered it back to the batsmen in those days, didn't they? Yeah, and they they went off for light, which I thought was a bit odd. It took sort of some time out of the game. Then Flint off bowled an absolutely inspired spell, as he'd done so many times that summer. And uh, it was down to the last day. If we could bat out the last day, um, we'd we'd sort of win the Ashes for the first time since. Uh, 1986, 87 under Mike Gatting. You know the Aussies came over in '89, nicked them back off us, and they've retained them ever since. So it's the first time that we'd had the Ashes in our hands for 16 years. But we had to that for last day to do it, and it was a, a Kevin Peterson knock. Um, which uh, you know we were under pressure a little bit early. I think Brett Lee had an inspired spell early on. I think he got Bell out for Nor, and uh, you know he uh, he was bowling like the wind. He bowled you know at Kevin Peterson. Newton was just hooking him off his nose putting him into the gasometer at the oval and it was it was a wonderful wonderful knock it was 158 and it just it just he took the game, and the longer he was at the crease, you could see the you know the blood visibly dri- drain out the faces of the Aussies, and uh, you know they knew the game was up. And uh, Ashley Giles came in at the end and got like 30 or 40, and and sort of you know managed to sort of take it even further away from him. And uh, you know it was finally the umpires came on uh, after a little spell for bad light again and uh, theatrically removed the bales, and the ashes were ours.
3: Ashley Giles was almost the unsung hero of that that series, because he bowled so many important spells, maybe not taking wickets, but keeping an end solid, and those runs he scored at the Oval just took all the worry away, didn't they? Because when he came in, if he got out straight away, then that that was game on, and you could see Australia with Gilchrist, etc., just going out there and smashing the runs they required. To win that game. I heard uh, Michael Vaughan the other day talking about that Kevin Peterson innings and he said he came in at lunchtime and he was sat there and he was looking a bit concerned because, as you said, Brett Lee was sticking up his nose and he was struggling and he'd nearly been out. Apparently Michael Vaughan said to him, what's what's up, what's, what's wrong? He said, I'm not sure what to do. You know, cause it, I think Kevin Peterson had thought, you know, I need to be defensive here, we need to bat out, I need to get into that zone of being defensive and, and Vaughan said to him, just go out there and play your natural game, take it to him. And that's what he did that afternoon. Those shots, the hooks in the sick were something else, weren't they? And the crowd there was incredible. And as you said, people locked out the grounds, people hanging from trees to watch cricket. It was on the front pages and the back pages. And you know, for people that love cricket, it was a very, very special summer.
2: It was. And, and you look at... Uh, The Australian side, I mean, that was an absolutely brilliant side. I mean, Hayden Langer, Ponting, Clark, Gilchrist, with the ball you had, Brett Lee, Glenn McGrath, Shane Warne. It just had quality right through the side, didn't it? And and it was, you know, I think what was so good about it was we beat... A very, very good side, you know, and it was it was in the Ashes series, you know, you see now, you know, if we beat this Australian side, yeah, I mean, they're a decent side, they've got a decent attack, and obviously Steve Smith, etc. But it's not one of the all-time great Australian sides. That was an all-time great Australian side, which makes it even better, in a way. Yeah,
3: exactly, And and I think most of us, if you're honest, at the start of that series, even though England had been in good form, we were hoping that England were going to run them close rather than beat them. Because that was we, we, we trained ourselves to that, had not we? We trained ourselves to being plucky losers at best. <laughs> and for, for Michael Vaughan to lead that team the way he did, and for them to step up and stick their chests out. And as you say, you know that, that first game at Laws, you hear a lot of the Australians say that it was a different England because England were in their faces. Rather than being timid and almost expecting to lose, England were playing to win.
2: Yeah, it was. It was. It was fantastic. And every game, every game was on a, a you know a cliffhanger, wasn't it? And it was. It was just. I thought. I mean, it was just the best series of all time. I still. I still got the DVD. I still watch it from time to time. And uh, so it's one of those just absolutely sort of brilliant series. And uh, yeah, I will. I'll continue to watch it till I'm an old man. <laughs>
3: Yeah, and on free-to-air telly, so everybody could enjoy it. Fantastic. stuff. Mm-hmm.
2: Some say I'm an old man already, but there you go. But uh, when I'm a real <laughs> geriatric man and I'm in my, you know, in my care home, I'll still have that DVD and I'll continue to watch that series.
3: You'll just have nothing to play it on by then.
2: Exactly. Well, I won't understand technology by then anyway. So, uh, <laughs> you know, there you go.
1: the cricket badger podcast association with cricket 365 comes to an end at the end of october we're seeking a new headline sponsor thank you very much indeed to cricket 365 for their support of the podcast over the last year this is a great opportunity for you to get your business in front of the cricket world be the headline sponsor on the cricket badger podcast We'll promote you on here We'll promote you on social media And we're also planning to incorporate new videos Onto the cricketbadgerpod.com website as well And you'll be emblazoned all over those twos Fantastic opportunity to get your business In front of thousands of cricket fans So Let's get together, form a great relationship going ahead We'll plug you and make sure the world knows about you Please check out cricketbadgerpod.com For further details
3: Let's move on then to my choice for the next one and the final choice of the podcast, actually. I'm going to cheat and I'm going to go with two and I'm going to try and do both of them justice. They are both at Old Trafford and they are three years apart. And we'll start with the first one because there was a certain young man called Sachin Tendulkar who people might have heard of. He went on to do rather good things in terms of his cricket career. But at this stage, he was only a a youngster. He he hadn't scored a test match century. And although people knew that he was a prodigious talent and potentially fantastic, this was the match where he got to three figures at Old Trafford in 1990. He'd scored runs in the the first innings. He'd got uh, 68. But in the second innings, he walked off unbeaten. It was a drawn game. So the game itself, yeah, n- nothing incredible to write home about, but he was batting at number six in the order at that stage for India, and he scored 119 not out of 189 balls, 17 fours. From there on, I think it was around about his 16th Test match, they persevered with him because so they knew he was fantastic. But this is where he became a man, effectively, on the Test match stage. Scored his first century, and then the rest is history, isn't it? You know, the, the guy goes on and does incredible things from there on. 200 Test matches, tops the record charts for for pretty much everything. He scored over 15,000 runs, averages over 50. Look at his ODIs, look at his T20s, look at his first-class record. The man was an absolute genius, Sachin Tendulkar, and that was Old Trafford 1990, was where he put his flag in the sand and said, right, that's my first century. He went on to score another 50 hundreds in Test match cricket after that, but I'm sure if you asked him, That would be one of the most important, because that was the first. You need to get the first to to get the rest of them, don't you? And he was a a terrific player, arguably one of the greatest of all time, if not the greatest of all time, certainly in the modern era. So, Sachin Tendulkar's first century at Old Trafford in 1990. That goes down as my my six-and-a-half choice.
2: Okay, yeah, I remember that, I remember that and it was a great knock, I remember, he used to have these big like polystyrene pads back in the day didn't he, and uh, <laughs> you know he was a uh, regular, you know, it's was not any a run he got, but he'd get regularly four leg buys off his pads as well, wouldn't he, <laughs> to add to the team total, but I also remember I think the first test of that series as well, and I saw, I went to two days of that played in that one as well at Lord, and it was famous for uh, Graham Gooch One, he, I saw him get 196 of his 333 that day and then I went to the, I think it was the day, and Eddie Hemmings, he cost me a fiver that day because I had a little bet with my mate, and uh, we I think they needed 24 to save the follow on. I bet my mate that they wouldn't get it. Capel Dev was there, they had one wicket to go. Capel Dev was there, Eddie Hemmings bowling to him, and Capel Dev slung him for four sixes in a row. <laughs> Saved the follow on,
3: Talk lost a yeah. fiver. <laughs> <laughs> Tendulkar, was 17 in that summer, so he was a kid. I mean, I don't know what everybody else listening to this was doing when they were 17, but I certainly wasn't scoring centuries at Old Trafford playing uh, for my country, and you know he'd he'd been around a little bit uh, before that as well. I mean, a a couple of years later, he was uh, Yorkshire's first overseas player for a a summer, Um, and the little master, he announced himself at Old Trafford in 1990 and went on to be... I would imagine if you're listening in India, he's your favourite player. I mean, you've got choices, haven't you? You've got MS Dhoni, you've got Virat Kohli, but Sachin Tendulkar, he's loved by everybody in India, and that was the start of his uh, rise to stardom, basically, 1990, a terrific, terrific player he became.
2: Yep, definitely, definitely, and he's, he's up there, you know, I mean, people talk about him and Bradman ahead of all others in the game, and, uh, you know, there's there's no better sort of
3: accolade, is there. The other choice for me is another overseas. I thought we can't, English soil's fine, but, you know, there's been some fantastic performances by overseas players. So Tendulkar's the first pick, and the second pick is how Shane Warne announced himself to the English audience. He came on, and I remember the commentary Richie Benno, obviously a a former great um, Australian leg spinner, knew the art, respected Shane Warne. He would have been full of expectation and hope that Shane Warne's first spell was probably going to be on the cut strip and he was going to do himself justice. But Mike Gatting, on strike, it became known as the the ball of the century. It looked like it was going to go miles down the leg side. And Gatting, using his pads, obviously can't be out LBW if the ball pitches outside the leg stump. Thought he got it covered. Gatting, not an inconsiderable beast, so, you know, have quite a bit in between himself and the stumps. But that ball pitched, it turned, it spanned, it ripped, and it darted from outside Gatting's leg stump. Took the off-bail. Only, I think, Ian Healy and Shane Warne and probably the umpire and the the watching audience could actually really comprehend what had happened because I think the rest of the Australian fielders played catch-up through the rest of the day as they tried to understand what had happened there. But I think it's the best ball I've ever seen bowled. And and to do that with your first ball, to give it that much of a rip with your first ball, just announces yourself as not only being prodigiously talented, but hugely confident, as we've seen since. You know, he went on to be the greatest spinner with Murali of all time but to announce yourself like that and Gatting's face as well you know the theatre of cricket and those moments that you remember Gatting just looking back up and just looking down at the pitch and looking at his stumps and thinking how on earth did that get from there to there and beat me it's,
2: but, that, uh, it's like Gatting's face was like someone nicked his lunch wasn't it it was <laughs> uh, it, it was just sort of you know an incredulous look wasn't it and it was like what has just happened what has just happened to me you know and it, it was just amazing. Amazing, amazing
3: delivery. Uh, I've heard Ian Healy describe it. And he said that, you know, obviously, he was behind the stick, so he could see it coming down and fizzing off the surface. And he said, you know, Gatting's pad was just a little bit too late. His bat was just a little bit too late. And the ball just zipped through everything and took that off bail. And, yeah, we, we know what Shane Warne's gone on to do. You know, Shane Warne's gone on to achieve ri- ridiculous things in the game, not just in Test Match cricket, but in one-day cricket, and obviously in franchise cricket around the world as that took off. But, yeah, you, you don't announce yourself... To the world. Yeah, We've seen Jofra Archer come into the England side this year and do fantastic things. We've seen great people do good things on debut. Andrew Strauss got, got a century on his test debut. So did Alastair Cook. So quite a few people. But to bowl that ball like he did and to say, here I am, I'm going to be around for a while. I'm, I'm going to take a shed load of wickets. That was just a ridiculous moment. And yeah, you'll always remember kind of Gatting crouched over his back. Just, as you say, just incredulous. How did that just happen to me? It was just incredible theatre.
2: Yeah, it made, it made Leg Spinning sexy again, didn't it, as well? Because it was a dying art at the time. I mean, you had sort of, you know, Ben-O in the sort of... 50s and 60s etc and then you had maybe Abdul Kadir came along in the sort of 70s yeah. and early 80s but it was a dying art I mean you never saw a leg spinner in English cricket at all you had Harry Latchman maybe at Middlesex in the sort of end of the 60s early 70s uh, it was gone and all of a sudden Warnie's come along bolt that ball and you saw kids wanting to flip it out the back of the hand again you know and it was it was wonderful and uh, you know leg spin is, is a beautiful thing it's one of the hardest things in the game to master a good leg spinner is, is beautiful to watch it's, it's like watching Gower as we were talking about earlier and uh, it's an art isn't it leg spin and uh, all the kids were wanting to bowl leg spin again rather than trying to bowl quick as they were in the 80s having watched the West Indies they were you know wanting to bowl leg spin and you know dyeing their hair blonde and uh, you know wearing earrings and uh, Warnie Warnie made, made that didn't they
3: and eating pizza he went on to take 708 Test match wickets and but yeah th- that's got to be the most famous of his career it was just a ridiculous delivery and like you said, so, you know, it was a dying art. And in a way, I mean, these are genuine greats that we're talking about here, Tendulkar and Warne, genuine greats right up there in all-time cricket. And in a way, they... You, you, You kind of have to almost pinch yourself sometimes when you're watching these guys, just to remember, kind of remind yourself how lucky you are to actually be seeing them either in the flesh or on your television and watching them live, because guys like that don't come around every day, do they? Shane Warne is a a once in, not just a once in a lifetime cricketer, he's probably a once in a a century kind of cricketer. He was that good. And he had the Chris Schofields and Yadav Rashid in recent times, yeah everybody hunt- hunting for their own version of Shane Warne, and you're never going to find it. You know, Avan Rashid's a fine bowler, but he's never going to be as good as Shane Warne. Shane Warne is the best of of the best and you know, Adam Gilchrist who we mentioned when you were talking about the 2005 Ashes he changed the, the scene for wicketkeeper batsmen in test matches didn't he you know, he was a very good wicketkeeper but he could go out there and average over 50 in test matches and everybody around the world was suddenly trying to scrabble around to see if we could find a batsman that could put some gloves on and be their version of Adam Gilchrist it's almost unfair isn't it that these guys are so good they burden everybody else who's trying to be as good as Ben.
2: Yeah, without a doubt. And you know, in a way Warney was like a he was a though wasn't he? He was a bit of a con man, wasn't he? I mean you wouldn't want to buy a used car off him. He you know, he came out of these deliveries later on, like the Zooter and all stuff like that and you know, it, it was just sort of variations of, of leg spins or flippers or googlies really, you know, and it was uh, but yeah, I mean he he was wonderful, wonderful to watch and uh, you know, he, just to sort of see him, you know, come on and uh, the strength in his fingers I think that's where it all came Came from. I mean, he had shoulder problems because leg spin comes from the shoulder and the fingers. Yeah, I mean, he had he had sort of finger and shoulder problems. But what uh, what what a, what a hero! <laughs> you know there's only so
3: many variations of leg spin you can actually bolt and he had a different one at the start of every single series and they were just the same delivery but named something different just to put the fear of god at the batsman
2: yeah yeah he was uh you know he'd say that sort of you know he'd been practicing this delivery or that delivery and uh, really it was a load of rubbish it was just to get in the heads of people but he did get into the heads of people and i think um in a way if warney hadn't had that ban in his career for the uh the sort of the diuretic um you know or the weight loss tablets, etc. I think he'd have been Australia's captain instead of uh, Ricky Ponting. And I think he'd have probably been maybe a little bit more inventive as a captain than Ponting. Ponting wasn't a bad captain, he led from the front and he was a very good batsman. Um, but I think Warney would have been a lot more inventive and a lot more thoughtful, perhaps about uh, about the game. You know, he had a very, very good cricketing brain along with the ability as well.
3: And we might not have had your 2005 Ashes to have included <laughs> in our uh, the iconic moments. I mean, you never agree. know. Think, you know, People come along and, and different. these moments change the course of the game, don't they? You never know quite what's going to happen. It's that butterfly effect. That warm delivery changed everything that was going to happen to spin ballers for the next 20 years afterwards.
2: It's that Badger style.
3: We've got to the end of our list of six then. Stroke seven, if you include my cheating. And Alistair Cook's farewell turn, Ben Stokes' heroics, Gower's 85 Ashes, the West Indies team in 1984, those 2005 Ashes, that fantastic series. Sachin's first turn in test matches at Old Trafford and Warren's ball of the century at Old Trafford as well. For seven nominations there and then our friends at thegoalhanger.co.uk will create some cricket badger iconic moments in international cricket prints which you can buy and stick on your wall thank you very much Dan for joining
2: me this week absolute pleasure and uh, good luck with the podcast it's been a, it's been a wonderful time and uh, I could sit here all night and just talk about this I'm sure there's about another 15 we could run through if we wanted but uh, no absolutely. <laughs> well, we, we could do
3: another one next week Dan we could do another one next week where we could do, we could do numbers 8 to 15 or something maybe, maybe we shouldn't but uh, it's been a pleasure having you on thank you very much for joining me and thanks for your time mate
2: no worries cheers mate it's that badger style
1: Thank you to Dan for joining me this week. I hope you enjoyed that chat. And reminder, that you can get any of the prints that come from that chat at goalhanger.co.uk. All seven of the discussion points that we raised on this podcast have all got their own print and we've added in the 81 ashes both them's ashes as well to make it an eight series cricket badger special edition with goldhanger.co.uk so pay them a visit have a look at their other stuff on the site as well some good stuff there available for you to hang on your walls well worth a trip goldhanger.co.uk as i promised you at the start of the show gonna play you out with mojo wellington his The Hundred Protest Poem. Until next time, Badgers, enjoy your cricket. Thank you for listening. Follow at cricket underscore badger on Twitter. Wherever you listen to the show, on whatever platform, it's available on on them all, but whatever platform you listen to, please give it five stars, give it a nice rating, share it with your friends, spread the word about the Cricket Badger podcast so we can keep going into the future. And until next week, Badgers, enjoy your cricket, and I'll leave you with Mojo, and his The Hundred Protest Poem.
2: It's that Badger style.
0: I oppose the hundred for the simple fact professional cricket doesn't need another shortened format with T20 and one day already in existence who decreed to proceed down the path of most resistance there are ways to innovate and modernize the sport without the trashing of the existing band of traveling support I oppose the hundred the assault on the county game the ECB, ignoring fans, whatever they may claim. England won the Men's World Cup by the skin of their teeth. Failure to build on that success truly does defy belief. 50 over cricket, domestically downgraded, the World Cup barely lifted, while the counties are grifted and raided. I oppose the 100 and the scrapping of the Super League. Where's the planning for the future? In this mindless, thoughtless blitzkrieg, why is women's cricket being shoved into a corner with all the tact and diplomacy of a sledge from David Warner? I oppose the hundred and the patronising claim women and children cannot understand a complicated game. Cricket is convoluted, idiosyncratic in charm. The way to learn the game is by watching. Tell me, what is the harm? of making the sport more attractive with tickets reasonably priced without a new competition where cricket is sliced and diced. I oppose the hundred and its tinkering of cricket laws. The MCC, a betting change it traditionally abhors. I oppose the hundred feel as sick as a pig seeing old players becoming lackeys in exchange for another gig hankering for the commentary box or a coaching role in one of the sides all the while embracing a scheme that so openly derides existing fans faithful to their team for the sake of a new competition replete with garish colour scheme. I oppose the hundred each team with a stupid name and draft pick rules designed by fools that complicate the game. I oppose the hundred, for I can count to six. A five or ten ball strategy play is not a simple fix. I oppose the hundred, the money thrown in the air. After Alan Stanford, you think they'd take more care. The helicopter may have gone, but dear Prudence is still playing second fiddle to a political play where the pawns in the game are the players out in the middle. Cricket was taken off free-to-air for the big money from Sky, But as grassroots have dwindled, the ECB won't eat humble pie. Instead, they look at the franchised IPL and Big Bash. Heads have turned, 20 balls burned by the allure of television cash. I oppose the hundred, a shameless rotten beast, despised across the land, from the southwest to the northeast. I oppose the hundred, for I truly fear the end of the county system is drawing ever near. I oppose the hundred and the vast expense. How will the hundred help a fifty-over World Cup defence? I oppose the hundred and am deeply cynical. Administrators truly believe test cricket is the pinnacle. I oppose the hundred and all it represents the ECB still ploughing on despite all common sense I oppose the hundred most of all because the ECB and the powers that be don't care about the likes of us
2: Sports Social Podcast Network
1: With the Lucky Land Slots you can get lucky just about anywhere